Well, welcome back, everyone, to Out of the Main. The day has come, the day that had been prophesied or prophesied. I don't know what the correct verb is there, but uh, not long after we had Tris emboldened on to count down his top 10 Tom Tom Ticklers, we surmised that, John, I think you even challenged me to bring a bass player in to do the same. Yeah. Do you have a cool, like, uh, alliterative name for this one? Uh, best Bad Butt Bass. Uh, I'm, <laughs> so I'm no. workshopping it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I got I got uh, Porter's powerful yet pristine pocket passers. Like it. Yeah. And then I started this one. Um, Vernon's verifiable, very vintage and venerable. And then I ran out of gas, so I, I have dot 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 after that. So I'm still workshopping it as well. Well, well, let's bring the man in himself. Maybe maybe he's got an idea. So uh, you've heard his name already, but please welcome formally everyone, Mr. Vernon Porter, to the podcast. Hey, Vernon. Hey, how you doing, Tom John? So it's great to see you guys. Yes, been too long. Yeah, we should say we're welcoming you back. Yes, thank you guys so much for all the support on the Heroes and Legends project. Appreciated everything you guys did for that. Uh, there was enough funds to uh, raise to help some folks through detox and recovery, and that was the purpose. So awesome! Bless Glad you to hear that. And if anyone yeah. needs to uh, check in on what that project was, demand impact.org. So, once again, the impossible task of picking <laughs> 10 top base pairs, right? So I str- I was able to get it down to a hundred. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh! Right. Well, so, we're gonna need yeah, a bigger man. boat and podcast. <laughs> I was gonna say, what's the old military thing? Smoke them if you got them. So, well, we've got we've got your top ten list here. We should remind listeners that we're gonna we're gonna count down from ten to one. We're gonna probably breeze through uh, ten through six and concentrate on the top five. John and I, uh, being the sibling rivalry um, participants that we are, have mm-hmm. some side action. We predicted our five basis, and I did mine a little bit differently this time. I didn't tell John I was going to do this, but instead of predicting the five that I thought you would have in your top five, I picked my own top five to see how many would overlay with your top five. Uh, I thought that would be interesting. interesting. So it's either a fool's errand or a good bet here. Yeah, well, we'll see. The good challenge was then that we didn't necessarily know. We put it out that it could be those bass players that influenced you they could be uh compatriots that you sort of challenged yourself against or they could simply just be favorites so you decided to do your 10 how you wanted to do them and uh, that's gonna be interesting so that that's what made the guessing even harder because we didn't the only clue you gave us was when you said can it be any genre so that made me change one in my list. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Well, this should be very interesting. Yeah. Well, and remember, I'm just a simple country bass player. They're just still trying to figure out which country. Oh, I didn't <laughs> and, put uh, any country guys so, in. Man, uh-oh. I should have. Well, that's that's my go-to line. So, you know, there, there are many top 10 lists. This one is mine. There are many like it, but this one is mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so no one can complain about it. It's yours. So there we it's, go. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, boy, this is so subjective, right? And with so many great players, how in the world do you pare it down? Like I said, when you guys said 10, it was like, oh, my goodness. We'll see what we can do here. Well, basic players are supposed to have good discipline, I thought, but well, I guess no. not. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Get your licks in when you can. That's, yeah, that's my right. Line. All right. But there was a reason I specifically thought of you first, Vernon. Uh, one, we wanted somebody who uh, you could regard as a session 
right? Session player, especially from uh, has ties to the Yacht Rock era. Me personally, I wanted somebody with a diverse uh, vocabulary. So somebody who likes to slap and pop, does some rhythm, you know, R&B, has maybe some rock background. You have all of that stuff. And um, is there, before we dive into this real quickly, is there a favorite style of Vernon Porter who's played with everyone from Kenny Loggins to Dave Mason to Bette Midler to on and on? Is there a favorite style of yours? You know what? The amazing thing, that's a great question, uh, Tom. I got to tell you, because when I first moved to the West Coast, I was known as an R&B guy, right? I was a bass player kicking horn bands and doing all the finger funk and the slapping stuff. And then I got here and I started, you know, making records with all these diverse artists and doing other things. And I had to completely change a lot of my approach. You know, it was almost like, hey, you know that thing you played at the audition? Yeah. Don't ever play that again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's how you got that's how you got the gig, but don't ever play that again. Yeah. Yeah, that's like Fagan trying to stare down Rainey from slapping, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So let's go through ten through six and then we'll kind of uh go back and hit some high notes on some of them. John, do you have anything else before we dive in? Uh, no, other than I had to uh, have the pun bell ready because you've used dive now, I think, three times. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> all right, well, let's dip a toe. Uh, here we go. <laughs> okay. Number 10, and we'll come back to a couple of these. Number 10, uh, Carol Kay, who interestingly enough was the subject of the conversation at the Nixon household this weekend when my other brother, listener yeah. Mike, who taught me bass, was over and was giving us Carol Kay's backstory. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, Joe Oz. But quickly, though, I did have you at 11. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you've never heard him play, huh? All right. So, <laughs> hey, all good musicians go to 11. So no, I'm there you glad go. to be at 11. I've, I've heard Tom play. He's a fine mace, a musician, not just a bassist. And he was at 11 for me. So. Oh, that's all right. good. Well, we both had us, me at 11. That's good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Joe Osborne uh, is number nine, member of the Wrecking Crew. Um, Jack Bruce. Jack Bruce, we would probably know best from Cream. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, oh, I missed number eight. Sorry, it was John Entwistle. I yeah. never heard of John Entwistle. Was he in some sort of band? The Who, baby. Who? <laughs> 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 uh, and, of course, I think, and then number six, quickly, I think this guy was also in a band of some renown, yeah. John Paul Jones. Surprised me that yeah. you pulled him out as a bass player, though, only because I think of him as 50-50 sort of doing that in the keys, and I was never quite where, sure where to peg John Paul. Yeah, so that's interesting. I, I think it was because of the early work. Okay. Uh, when, you know, they were doing a lot of, you know, just uh, trio stuff behind plant, you know, before they really brought in the heavy keyboard rigs. And as we and as we revisit each one of these names, I'll, I'll tell you why I mean, he made my list. The thing I, what I associate, I'm not a huge Zeppelin fan. I can't tell you all about the canon, but what I do when growing up, when I heard Zeppelin, I heard different um, approach on the neck with uh, John Paul Jones. He seemed to want to come and explore melodic lines as things were happening. Is that your take as well? It is, but also, man, he was incredibly greasy. I mean, you listen to a track like uh, Ramble Lawn, forget it. It's like those early bass lines when I started hearing this guy, I was like, what? You know, mm. and then, you know, of course, as you get uh, introduced to more English players, you know, you realize, you know, there's some pretty greasy fellows over there. Must be the fish and chips. But, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, I did wear some uh, 
uh, Johnny Depp, uh, you know, Sauvage Cologne today, so I could break out my English accent as we get closer to these guys. Who, you know, <laughs> he, he he was great. I figure if Johnny's from Kentucky and can use an English accent, me being from Ohio, I you can as well. That. Well, we do it all the time around our house because we're always quoting Monty Python. So <laughs> exactly. So they were great, weren't they? Oh yeah, love it, love it, <laughs> love it. So. Give us a quick education on Carol Kay for people who don't know this name. I mean, they should know the name, but they should probably one of the most prolific bass players, maybe in terms of sure. recording. Well, you know, she runs real close with Joe Osborne and another honorable mention, Harvey Brooks. Uh, that trio of bass players right there from that era were just, I mean, you know, and if folks don't know how she became a bassist, she was a guitarist doing session work. Just learned that over the weekend. Yeah, uh, and one day the bass player didn't show up, and she goes, "I think I can handle that." And she picked up the you know the Fender bass, which is all you were allowed to have in studios back then. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you didn't have a Fender, like my first uh, recording date with the Larson Feedman, I showed up with my Series One Olympic, and everybody looked at me and went, "Where's your Fender?" Uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's on my car. I don't typically bring it in. <laughs> I typically don't bring fenders into it. Yeah. So anyway, but that was like in the union book and everything. Fender bassist. That meant you had a yeah. pick and a yeah. certain style that you would play. And so Carol was the one that sort of jumped that off. But actually, after number nine, but she very prolific, played with everybody and their brother, Stevie Wonder. If you're unfamiliar with her recording work, do yourself a favor. And go listen to it. And as we find out with a lot of these guys, uh, they do have some sort of jazz background. And so that's when you hear the interesting players going upstairs, as you had mentioned, Tom, uh, playing above the fifth fret and, and exploring all that stuff and getting away from just root tones and even one five eights, which was, of course, the anchor of the day. Uh, that's when more melodic bass lines were put in. And when you listen to Carol Kay and Osborne and some of these guys, you just go, and gals, you just go, my gosh, listen to that different approach, you know, because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's not just, you know, banging on the root notes, doing quarter notes or, you know, back then, dangerously eighth notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was what's interesting is that, you know, coming from a guitar player standpoint, there's usually in a lot of those earlier sessions, as you know, the uh, like the Beach Boys stuff or where they were assembling a larger band, they might have two or three guitarists. And the job of one of the guitarists was always to double the bass line. Yeah, yeah. Because it would be in order for it to, for the bass to cut through in the mix, it needed that attack on the front end. So playing bass lines with a pick would not have been completely foreign to her. No, not at all. That, that was her uh, comfort zone. Um, you know, the great Tal Wilkenfeld, I know I'm kind of going off the list here a little bit. Same thing. She started as a jazz guitar player. Yeah, yeah. So when people hear her play, her solos are ridiculous because of her background and training in jazz. Not to say she's not a, a fine pocket player. She's a great all around player. But, you know, you can you can tell somebody who is kind of born and bred on the bass versus somebody who's kind of, you know, picked it up through a guitar chair, you know, uh, at least for me, I think. And uh, but yeah, she's a wonderful player. So Joe Osborne, I got to let you know, he was the guy starting in 1961 in L.A. He played on 197 top 40 hits, Woo. moved to Nashville in 74 and played on 53 number ones. Woo. So this is I that played with, uh, you know, everybody and their brother in L.A., all the early pop stuff, Fifth Dimension on a Bridge Over Trouble. So look these guys up. 
bass player friends listening to the show, please, you will be amazed. John Entwistle, the reason why he's on my list at number eight there is because of the round-round sound that he brought in. Mm-hmm. He was still a pentatonic guy, but he changed the sound of the instrument. Jack Bruce, same thing, heavily distorted, jazz background. Uh, if you look at, uh, well, we'll talk more about this as, as we get into number five and four here. John Paul Jones, studio player, and once again, had great influences that really set his bass lines apart. So listening to the early Led Zeppelin stuff records, one and two, when he was really focused on the bass, he was really doing some breakthrough stuff for that kind of music. You didn't find greasy guys like that. So that's why. Hope you don't mind that quick addition. No, that's good. It's interesting, though, just as I look at the top five versus the bottom five, a lot more rock representation in your bottom five. And as you get closer to the pinnacle of what Vernon holds up as bass, I think we're going to see some more jazz, funk, fusion, and stuff like that. So, but again, that's the reason I wanted you to be on the show because you have that, you know, diverse vocabulary and background. Yeah. And I, I just, I have so much respect for all these folks that, you know, like I said earlier, the shoulders that we stand on. I think it's really important to recognize these players, you know, because without some of these folks, we would have no idea what we were doing. Well, it's, there are some more innovators to come. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's move on to this top five um, because number five was a name that actually I wasn't familiar with, and I'm not even sure exactly how to pronounce the first name. So who is number five and why did he crack into your top five best bass players of all time? Once again, I had to go with somebody who literally created his own style of playing. Elaine Caron is Elaine is the first name is a Canadian uh, bassist. And not only was he heavily influenced by the fretless work and, and incredible writing and, and playing of Jaco Pastorius that influenced him early on, he came up with a thumb technique all his own that I had never witnessed before. We're talking Mark King, we're talking Victor, we're talking all these other guys. There's a track called Stomp the Clown. <laughs> pull it up once a year just to revisit his genius and you think you're listening to a clavinet line and it's his bass line all the while he's playing the melody to the song. wow <laughs> yeah so when you see this guy's technique you just go what you know like i said i'm just a simple country bass player 
<laughs> okay. Well, I got some I got some homework to do. But speaking of homework, John, he is a fellow alumnus alumnus of Berkeley College of Music. I so. saw that. Yeah, that was all I knew about him is he did a summer session there. But I am in the right city for this next one. Number four, uh-huh. James. Jamerson. Some people might not know the name James Lee Jamerson. So who is he, Vernon? Uh, and it's obvious why he's in your top five. Yeah, just influenced so many players. If you listen to any great basis on this list, they will all reference Jamerson at some point. the king of Motown, uh, played on so many hits. I mean, gosh, you know, that's a number that I've neglected to look up my bad. But, uh, you know, his influence on the world of bass is undeniable. Now, when you watch him play, it always made me nervous, you know, because he was an upright guy switching to electric, right? So he, he was doing both chairs, but he played upright style on a, on a P bass with the yeah. deadest strings in the world, like Joe Osborne, number nine. Dead strings, never change a string. You break a string and it's like, you know, your world it just came to an end. <laughs> I don't want that live sound. And uh, so at any rate, uh, an interesting story about him was when Motown moved to Los Angeles, the sound of bass had started to change. Like I said, John Entwistle bringing in the roto sounds. And then you've got R&B guys going to the roto sounds. Uh, more slap technique is coming in. And Jamerson's career abruptly ended because he could not make the transition from flat wound dead mm-hmm. strings to round wound strings. Really, wow. really sad story. And after all the hits that he had helped create for Motown to be left out in the cold like that, you know, I get it that it's a business, but uh, I just felt so horrible for him, you know, and especially uh, knowing that because I was a flat wound fretless P bass guys or P bass guy early on kicking a 10 piece horn band. And when I first switched over to round wound strings in an Olympic, it was like, uh, this exposes every bad thing I've ever done. <laughs> Explain why that's difficult for people that don't understand that round wound strings are much brighter. The, the, you can hear the lot more fret movement, but what, what's the transition difficulty to you? Uh, yeah, it was for me, and I think all the round wound guys, was just that you have a much liver sounding instrument. Like I've often compared a P bass with flat lines to a kick drum with strings on it. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's just, there's not that much definition. You go back and listen to some old Motown recordings and you're going, what? Uh, what? Which is which? What? <laughs> I yeah, going back to why they doubled it with guitar sometimes. in the old days. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially with Spectre producing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, can we get just a little more reason? He wasn't English, but, <laughs> no. but that uh, works. Somehow. Yeah. somehow that works. Yeah. Somehow it does. Right. <laughs> we can just imagine Spectre being English. That's yeah. more reason, please. But uh, yeah. So just getting to that live sound and it, it was a tough transition for me. It took, I don't know, maybe six months to a year before I really started feeling comfortable with it because of so many years invested in, you know, the, the, uh, the flat one, dead flat ones. And when you watch Jamerson play, it was with one finger, just his index finger. So every R and B guy from my city of Columbus, Ohio, were playing with one finger. So when I switched from pick to fingers, I was trying to do one finger. Going, I, I can't make 16th notes like this. There's gotta be something missing, you know? So uh, then comes along, you know, another guy on the list that we'll talk about, but yeah, Jamerson listen to any early Motown stuff and his bass mastery. It's just ridiculous. Once again, Jazz training, different melodic playing. 
used a lot of major sevens and things like that. The most people say never hit a major seven. Yeah. yeah. He lived on. So, uh, to, to, Fill in the blanks. 23 uh, Billboard 100 number one hits. 56 R&B number one hits. Wow. And, yep, Rolling Stone magazine ranked him number one in its list of the 50 greatest bassists of all time. So, mm, interesting. worthy of high praise. Uh, definitely worthy of high praise. And like I said, there are many top 10 lists. There are many like it, but this one is mine. So, right. <laughs> we'll because some of these top 10 lists I've looked at and I've gone, you know what? I think it's just younger players that, you know, they have like a current guy and they go, oh, that guy's, you know, he's the greatest. Yeah. An old jazz guy taught me one time. He, he whipped out his, he was a sax player. He whipped his business card out and he said, I'm the world's second greatest tenor player. <laughs> I said, wow, who's number one? He goes, nobody knows. So I'll just be number two. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that yeah, nobody lays claim since, to that. That's funny. right. So that, that stayed with me since I was 17. I'll try to be number two. So speaking of number two, let's move on to number three, which yeah, yeah. became a household name early when I was a young kid trying to learn how to play bass. My eldest brother <laughs> introduced this name to me uh, before long. My, uh, my entire world opened up. Who's number three on your list? Uh, and, you know, this could be interchangeable all the way up to number one, but number three has got to be Jocko Pistorius. Not only for what he did, you know, putting, uh, you know, boat lacquer, pulling the frets out of his jazz bass with pliers and putting boat lacquer on the rosewood neck, on the fretboard rather, and then putting round lawn strings, rota sounds on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was younger, he actually, he worked with a group called uh, Wayne Cochran and the CC Riders, a funk band, 10-piece horn band, funk band. And he came through my hometown of Columbus and played a place called the Sugar Shack. And he was just funking it up at that point in time. And people were going, Bernie, have you heard this bass player? Yeah, I have. And of <laughs> course, his first solo record comes out, comes out and it flips the world on its head. Nobody ever heard anything like it. So it was fretless, but with round wounds? Is what it was. Saying? And then yes. also, I mean, besides being bright, it was also very kind of thin tone because he articulated so many notes. But why was that? Or how was that? Was he playing near the bridge or what? Or was it just a tonal? Thing. Yeah, it, it was more of an attack thing. Like with your right hand, technique-wise, uh, you know, we always say tone is in your hands. Uh, so, you know, like when I track or, or do live stuff, look at my settings, they're always flat. Like guys will call me up, other bass players, and go, hey, man, what was your signal path on that? Okay. I go, just flat into a DI. No, I don't believe Yeah, I'm just moving my hand. If I want a little more depth, or I'm going to mm. slap and move up on the fretboard. If I want a little more articulation, I'll go back towards the bridge. And so Jocko was a bridge guy. He only used the jazz pickup wide open. Uh, you know, the, the neck pickup was barely on, if at all. And like I said, he put this shellac, this varnish boat lacquer on the fretboard. And that's how he got that buzz sound. Wah, oh, wah, okay. wah. And uh, just out of his brain, you know, what can I do? Because the round wounds were chewing up the fretboard. But didn't he also, isn't this the guy that also removed, like physically removed the frets off yeah, a fretboard? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. And then yes. filled it in with the bolt. Yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. He, he could took have a set of pliers. <laughs> he could, hard to find back then, but yeah. certainly hard to find with a jazz pickup. Uh-huh, All the uh-huh. fretless bases back then were basically P bases because they were trying to, you know, mock an upright as closely as they could. 
So they didn't want all that articulation. They didn't want all that tone. Right. And then as you're saying, the boat lacquer also changes the, uh, oh. the yeah, the wood that would have been on the neck is now boat lacquer. So that's also added exactly. to the He's, yeah, he's not hitting raw wood because it would, it would chew the wood up with the round one strings. And he influenced, you know, I mean, gosh, everybody's got a job to influence, whether they know it or not, like everybody on this list, I think. You also have Jimmy Hayslip on there, though. What Do, do you connect Jimmy Hayslip to Jocko? You had them both on there. Uh, you know, I do. Jimmy, Jimmy's a dear friend, one of the most amazing guys you'll ever meet. Uh, sweetheart, you know, just so down to earth. And he's one of the guys that came out. Uh, you know, he knew Jocko and he's one of the guys that came out of that influence, like so many bass players, but carved a niche just for himself, you know, not only with the yellow jackets, but, you know, I call him the hardest working man in show business. Every time I call him, I'm Italy right now, you know, calling <laughs> call next week, call I'm in London. You know, he's just, he never stops. And he's such a brilliant player. And I think he's taken that Jocko mantle and done it justice, you know, and created his own voice out of it. But they're both sort of in that fusion space, so you're kind of like let them occupy the slot, share the slot almost. Well, yeah, but it, you know, it's. I mean, Jimmy is there because, like I said, uh, he developed his own voice. But not only do they have that jazz influence style, but you know, they play they can play with anybody. I mean, look at all the stuff that Jocko did with Joni Mitchell, right? And even his solo records, he's not just like blowing chops all the time. His favorite thing was learning Frank Sinatra melodies. So uh-huh. like any s- smart player, it's like you learn how to harmonize the major scale. You allow all the melodic things that are taking place underneath you from guitar and keyboards to cover that. And then it frees you up to just harmonize along the major scale and then occasionally an altered chord or scale. And you sound like a genius because you're <laughs> allowing all that, all that harmony to work for you underneath. And, right. you know, that's one thing that bass players... Uh, should really focus on because now there are so many great technicians. I mean, come on, you know, Lars Rimmer from us, you know, can play anything <laughs> yeah. you want to hear. Right. Yeah. There's just so many great technicians all over the planet. But if you go back to home base and listen to these guys that had any tool in the belt that you could ever want, but still knew that you don't pull them out all the time. I, I think that's true of guitar players too. I think there's a lot of machines out there that can do great technical work, but I, it doesn't move people the way some of these other guys did. I agree. You know? I agree. Yeah. I call that some of those folks typists and forgive me if that sounds cruel, but you know, no. it's like reading no. sheet music and just playing, you know, the most out, you know, 1630, whatever you can find. I used to go to the NAMM show and go, I've got a hundred dollar bill for a whole note. <laughs> <laughs> no takers, man. <laughs> no. So that was in what, 1977. I still have that same hundred dollar bill in those jeans today. So yeah. All right. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, let's, um, let's number move on two. Number two. Us, yeah. Us lefties love who you have picked at number two. Cause I, when I try to play any sort of guitar, I play lefty. So I appreciate this one. Tell us about uh, number two. Number two, Paul McCartney, you know, just uh, what an adventurous guy on the instrument. You know, most Beatle aficionados know the story of, you know, they lost their bass player, Stu Stutcliffe, who suddenly passed away. And uh, so one of them, well, let's, let's not hire another guy because, you know, John... Paul and George were all guitar guys, and you know Lennon's gone. I just bought a new Rick and Backer. It's not going to be me. And George, 
Well, <laughs> I've, I've just got the latest uh, Mel Bay book. It can't be me. So McCurdy <laughs> said, well, I'll do it, but I'm not going to play it in the back line like a big fat guy. I'm going to play what I want. <laughs> and so <laughs> the great story about him is that, uh, you know, when they were done recording all day at Apple, Everybody would go home except for McCartney. He would stay all night and compose all of those incredible bass records. And so, you know, the first guy that I ever heard play 16 notes on a pop record, first guy that I ever heard come up and play counter melodies on a pop record like he did. Now, many to follow, right? Uh, even from the 60s era, but so-and-so was not before McCartney. <laughs> yeah. You know, go back and listen to the early stuff. It's just genius and it's one of those guys that's made for the instrument and he break he broke so many rules i remember a story that uh brian wilson told how he was heavily influenced by paul as a bass player and that the big thing was how paul essentially um redefined or inverted chords because he would often not put what would be the root note in the bottom of his baseline it would be built off right. of the third or whatever and so brian yes. wilson took that challenge and actually used that to write one of the greatest songs of all time and that is god only knows which almost never has the root in the right bass. exactly right exactly right. and the great thing about it was mccartney only learned a few piano chords from his dad a few inversions you know none of them were trained players to stop and think that they got all that stuff just came out of his mind after tracking all day and then staying all night and coming up with those brilliant parts, hitting all that stuff around the 10th and 12th fret. Yeah. Uh, and all those great counterpoints and rarely touching upon the roof. You know, it, it, well, you know, you'll hear him veer out on everything and all of a sudden in the middle of it all, right back to the rock roots. And it's just right. genius the way you put it all together. So yeah, yeah he could have been easily my number one, but, uh, uh, you know, I hope he doesn't mind being one uh, B or one C or whatever. <laughs> All right, and, well. and yet, but but I got to tell you real quick, and if you edit this out, fine. It'll be like, now who came up with his list? Who's Vernon Porter? Get me Vernon Porter. Get me a young Vernon Porter. Who's Vernon Porter? <laughs> <laughs> the cycle of a, of a musician's career. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure he'd appreciate how you've composed this list. It's been very thoughtful so far. So far. Yeah. Uh, let's so see far. what happens at number one. We, we <laughs> are at number one. John, drum roll, please. <laughs> but hold on. Oh, there's an irregularity. There's oh. a hanging Chad because we have. Two no politics. <laughs> two people at number one. So yes. uh, who do we have at number? They're related. Okay. I can see how they're related. I'd like to hear this. So let's tell yes. us. Yeah. Give, give us your number ones. Yeah, my number ones, and I couldn't uh, go with anything else. Are Rocco Prestia, God bless his uh, his uh, departed soul, and Larry Graham from uh, Sly and the Family Stone, and uh, of course Graham Central Station. Uh, the thing about these two guys that everybody else hangs on is um, Rocco introducing the 16th notes the way he played them. And he was such a humble guy. And if you ever watch his technique, he goes, I don't know why everybody's making this so hard. Because <laughs> 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 he'll see guys trying to play something. And go, 
what are you doing, man? <laughs> and he was so sweet. You talk, man, you know what? You're, you're the greatest uh, bassist and influence on my career. And he, and he would go, oh, come on, man, I'm just a bass player, you know? And uh, so, but at any rate, uh, Needle Drop on the Tower of Power album to What Is Hip, as we were discussing with the 16th notes, it, once again, it was just a game changer for everybody. Even the great Jaco Pastorius was influenced by Rocco Prestita. So when you go and listen to Jocko's stuff, when he's bumping out 16th notes and funky pockets like that, yeah, uh, he'd be the first guy to tell you. Yeah, uh, Rocco's definitely. I find it really interesting that both you and Tristan Bowden had uh, Tower of Power characters in your top five. I believe it was in his top five. Yeah. So yeah, he, I, yeah, I think he went three, right? With yeah. Garibaldi. Right, right. And he was mentioning uh, he was mentioning Rocco Prestia. So he did. He, yeah, so interesting. Yeah. You guys are like the tight rhythm section, you know, bass drums are right together. <laughs> right. So those guys, I mean, to get a drummer and a bass player like that in the same band, it's like, are you kidding me? You know, and everything that they did, I mean, they got a few things that are like any I mean, these guys have been tracking for what, 60 years or whatever it is, 50 years. So you're gonna you're gonna have one or two in there that you eh, maybe a do-over, but the the body of their work is just pure genius. Not only what is hip, but bass players check out uh, only so much oil. Then Larry Graham, Larry Graham, uh, a, a great track to listen to on him would be "Release Yourself." Uh, that's with the Tower of Power horn section. And let's not forget that all these guys are from Oakland, my mm. top two. They're Oakland Jeez. guys. So who knows what was happening in the air and the water. Right. But, man, it was something good. And so when you listen to Graham, the father of thumb, right? That's he's, what I was going to ask. Yeah. So we attribute that to him, huh? Okay. Slapping? slapping. No, well, thumping, as, as the R&B guys call it. Thumping yep. and popping, right? Yep. And uh, so it, when he started doing that... Uh, the the story that I've heard and I've read that this is true and I got to open for Larry a hundred years ago and it was like the best bass lesson I think of my life for that style of play and uh, just watching it was just incredible you know and uh, same thing with Rocco just the expertise in which he's kind of played their styles but he was playing in a church uh, in the Bay Area had a crappy little lamp and they couldn't hear him so he started thumping on the bass to make, just make it louder and get it out there in the mix. And developed this unique style, like many of these other players on my top 10 list. They created styles out of nothing to create something that's influenced almost every bass player that plays. So often it's out of necessity, too, like that. That's so cool. Yes, exactly. So just the genius of thinking something up like that. And then the early stuff with Sly and the Family Stone uh, was with flat miles, which was interesting. You know, you hear him thumping it because there's absolutely no hold over on the tone. Yeah. Right. So let me thank you for letting me be myself again. <laughs> 1968. That's fun. That's that's the great Larry Grant. So when you've got guys like Marcus Miller, Victor Wooten, all of these incredible thumb guys, it's the same thing. The influence all comes from the great Larry Grant. Who doesn't like to blow some 16th notes on it? on a date, right? But every time <laughs> I do that it, on the break, everybody goes, wow, man, we said it is like a tower power. <laughs> oh my God. 
So if you play a 16th note, you know, all of a sudden you're copying Rocco, which I guess is certainly true to a degree. But yeah, yeah those are my my two number one guys that I think all modern bass players, uh, in, and including Jocko, with his thing, those are the three that all modern bass players, those are the shoulders we all see. Nice. Well, that's a fantastic oh, list. Um, I love it. Let's uh, quickly go to the scoreboard. I will tell right. you out of the, well, first of all, we asked for 10. You gave us 12. Um, <laughs> and you said earlier that I was number 11. So that's really great company to be in. Thank are you, you on your own list, Tom? <laughs> yes, I'm going to start my own list. Okay. Are you on your own list? I'm not on my own list. I would be okay. obviously number one on my own list. No. Yeah. Well, um, plus that, though, remember, Tom, I had to bump you down because you said Mike. You know, the taught you oh, yeah. your other brother, so but I, he became eleven, and that made you number twelve. So <laughs> 13, thirteen. No, I surpassed him though. <laughs> well, I got four out of five right. Did you really? Yes. Yeah, so hold on. Well. Hold your horses. You got four out of five. Me being the bass player, I got zero out of twelve. Um, <laughs> but let me run through my top five quickly um, because nobody cares what I think. But just so you know, so the scoreboard is accurately reflected. I had Marcus Miller at number one, the man that can, I think, literally do no wrong. I've never heard him do anything wrong. Uh, number two, Lewis Johnson. Just a fantastic. I love the music band sound. I love his style. I love that he overdoes it at times because I do the same dang thing. Lewis Johnson, number two. John, you know how much I love him. Three, oh, yeah. Nathan East. We're sticking within a theme. It was not intended to be all sort of the same era, but three, Nathan East. I feel like he's Marcus Miller sort of. If you if Marcus Miller were sick, Nathan East can step right in. You won't even miss a beat. Abe Laboreal. Mm. It doesn't get any more prolific than him. Number five, I went a little bit off the reservation here. John Taylor from Duran Duran. Love I think he's John. fantastic. Yep. Real quick, John, before I turn it over to you, my honorable mentions, obviously Mike Picaro, David Hungate, uh, Joe Puerta from Ambrosia. I just think love he's his so tasty and so subtle. Uh, I love Joe's play. He's speak, a great player. No doubt. Uh, opposite end of the spectrum would be Bootsy Collins and Flea because they are very yeah. tasty, but they're not subtle. Crazy. Uh, yeah. Will Lee crazy. is somebody that I emulated growing up uh, on the recommendation of listener Mike. Neil Steubenhaus, of course. And then the last name that you may neither know, and that's Patrick Dahlheimer. Do you know who that is? I don't. Mm -mm. The bass player from the band Live, who, like myself, oh. got its his roots in slapping and popping, and somebody told him it wasn't cool, and so he had to figure out what to do next. And I think you did a great job playing bass for the band live. So those are my right. top five and honorable mentions. John, what are yours? Well, mine are not my top five. I decided to try and figure out from what I know of Vernon's playing and age, of course, too. So who would be the influences who uh, may have come before him? The, as you said, uh, Vernon, standing on the shoulders of. And then what were the sort of the pieces of your playing that stand out? And I tried to figure out. And I must, you know, they say drummers do listen to bass players. So the fact I got four out of five right. So my list was McCartney. Mm -hmm. I had Jamerson. I had Entwistle. Ah. I had Prestia. Ah. One I did not have was a jazz guy, and that is Ron Carter. Right. Uh, the great upright player. Of course. Uh, but what's interesting is when I moved Entwistle up into the list, I cut Jack Bruce. So I had Jack Bruce as well, but he made, he got cut. He got so six out of got five out of 12. Yeah, not too bad. That's pretty good, man. That's pretty good. Let the record reflect, though, that I won the drum competition with, with tricks. That is true. 
Yeah. It is true. Uh, so bass players listen to drummers. I, I tried to. There you go. There you go. Isn't that funny? Only if necessary. Only if I can't find where I am coming well, out of my bass solo. Yeah. yeah. Well, like like they told me early on, you know, I think you just played. Yeah, don't ever play that again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. I've heard that one too. <laughs> you know, I asked. Uh, I asked uh, John and uh, I think I asked Tris was on too. I asked them as drummers, "Do you like when bass players uh, spring surprises on you at the last minute?" So you're he's in the pocket, you know, like Jeff Picaro, and then I decide I'm going to. <laughs> just when he was ready to do his nice little do do a pop fill so um, <laughs> you said you had uh, surprises up your sleeve did we cover them all well yeah i think with, with the list and the thing about your list tom is that any of those guys could have easily been on this list the reason why i gave honorable mention to anthony jackson and marcus miller because marcus is out of that jocko era as well a wonderful fretless player and a wonderful thumb player who actually, you know, he's got the double thump that everybody, you know, raves about, you know, he and Victor Wooten. And now the younger guys have even taken it beyond that, you know. Uh, so any of those guys could have made the list, and I would agree with all of them. Uh, I love Nathan. I love Marcus. I mean, they're just, you know, they're phenomenal people and musicians. Um, so, yeah, kind of interchangeable. But like I said, I really tried to stick with the guys that were the style creators and the uh, originators of the styles that we all have in influencing our play, whether we uh, know that or not, you know? Yes. Speaking Ooh. of which, well, we have an, is this going to be like a sneak attack? Oh, we have a surprise, another bass player surprise. And that is right. listener. Mike has joined the podcast. Listener Mike. Welcome. I heard you guys are talking about bass players in we uh, word. My invite go. <laughs> check your junk. Yeah, check your junk. In more ways than one. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. It's a family show. It's yeah. a family. Yeah. Uh, Mike, meet uh, Vernon Porter, one of your heroes. Oh, Vernon, it's a, a pleasure and an honor to uh, meet you and uh, be on with you. Oh, you as well, sir. You as well. And you made the you made the list. I don't know if you heard that part, but you made my, my list. Yeah, because you were such an influence on Tom. You know, we, we had to get you on the list here of top players. So I can't be on that list. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to meet you, man. I've heard great things about you and what a great influence you had on your brother, uh, you know, with his playing. I, I think that's just wonderful stuff, man. So it's an honor to meet you, sir. Thank you for saying so. Congratulations to you on a fantastic career, not only as a, a bassist, but uh producer and uh, all of your successes but you, the other thing i know about you is like me you started on sax in fourth grade yes and i was uh, i was in fifth grade started on sax and then uh took up bass at approximately the same time i was 14 you were 15 so yeah and then it, my own bio until i got to the part where how successful you were and then i realized it wasn't that was me <laughs> <laughs> all right well yeah. Mike, we were just about to let Vernon go, but before we do, do you have your top five bases? You don't have to give us the chapter and verse, because I think we've covered about 20 of the best bass players on the planet living in deceased. Who would be your top five real quick? Real quick. Okay, so going from five down to one, Chris Squire of Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, he was a consideration for me. Yeah, he was uh, obviously very unique. Uh, number four, uh, he, he, I got a couple here I don't think you guys probably grabbed, but maybe you did. Uh, Johnny B. Gaden. No. Uh, El the Icebreakers and Johnny Winter. I don't know if you guys are hip to Johnny yeah. B. Gaden. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, number three, the one and only Wilton Felder. Yes. Partial, uh, you know, being that he's a doubler on Saxon base. Uh, number two, and this is another wild card, maybe. John won't be surprised. David Dickey, uh, who was with America for nine years and mm-hmm. uh, fantastic uh, bassist. I usually don't like busy bassist, but he was the tastiest busy bassist I've uh, I've ever heard. If you listen to the America Live album, uh, it's always a treat to hear him. And then finally, no surprise to. Uh, uh, Tom and John, but uh, Marcus Miller, who's been my number one bass hero since uh, I was a teenager. So those are my top five video overlaps. Yeah. Uh, well, Marcus. you know what? Yeah. And there was, I, you know, Marcus was certainly mentioned on my list, but I did seriously think about Chris Squire uh, for coming around and bringing such a unique style and tone, but I had to go with Entwistle because he was the creator of the tone for all of those English guys. Only difference being he was a finger guy instead of a pick guy. So, yeah, very similar. By the way, fourth grade on sax was the first time I ever heard, you know, that thing you just played, don't ever play that again. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's a common theme for you, it sounds like. <laughs> it has been, yeah. That's what. That's when you picked up the bass. And you, do you know why I picked up the bass? I Mike said you got to learn an instrument, and there was a bass sitting next to a guitar, and I can count. And so I do four strings had to be easier than six. So, <laughs> yeah. Not I'll really. start with the four. No. Yeah, yeah. Such a myth, right? Yeah. yeah. Such a myth. Yeah. Like you know, McCartney said, "I'm not playing all those roots. I'm not yeah. doing it." <laughs> all right well thank you uh listener mike for uh for crashing the yeah, party well, here hey, thanks and vernon i understand it was your idea to have me on originally so thank you for that and this may be the last time i'm on if john has anything to say about it so. yeah, you got to get the user manual for zoom out because you're on here twice somehow <laughs> uh, uh my computer uh had to update the app so i had to go with plan b and call in from my phone so i'm, I'm glad it worked out i was going to be in- tremendously embarrassed but Okay, Boomer. <laughs> All right, take care, guys. All right. Take care. Great to meet you, Mike. Vernon, here, Vernon, thanks again for being on. This was a blast, Vernon. Um, is there any project or anything that we should be looking forward to coming out of your camp? Anything either related to the charity or otherwise? Yeah. So I know TJ is diligently working on, you know, try, uh, getting another Heroes Legends Part 2 I haven't talked to him lately. He's got a lot of building blocks he's got to put together, but I know he's working on that stuff. Uh, The uh, group that I had above the clouds uh, in the early aughts, late P1999, so those records are being re-released. The second one was released about a month ago. The first one will be out here within the next week. Uh, The great Vince Denham, uh, who played sax on there, spent 28 years with Michael McDonald. Uh, you name it, Vince, you know, Vince played with everybody. Vince has been uh, battling some health issues. And uh, so it was great to get those back out. Uh, and so uh, they could be heard again, you know. And uh, the ones getting ready to come out, that was the number four record of the year. Uh, the second one was the number five record of the year. And so much like that, along with uh, the honor of being, you know, put in the, in the Funk Hall of Fame was that, you know, all three of those things put together. And five dollars will still get me a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Right. <laughs> we know that, yeah. <laughs> also, so, get you a so. regular uh, appearance on Out of the Main, though, as well. So, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. So, no. If if folks want to go, uh, just you know, there's a Spotify channel now for that stuff for the Above the Clouds uh, YouTube, all that stuff. Uh, we would consider it an honor if folks uh, care to listen and enjoy it. And uh, you know, just uh, trying to you know stay active 
and, uh, you know, do the thing that we all love to do, which is, uh, you know, being a musician. Awesome. Well, as we say often on this podcast, John, put a pin in that beneath the clouds thing, because that is going to come up in our lightning round. All right. Well, real quick, before we dive into the lightning round, Whew. a couple of corrections need to be made. Oh, boy. So uh, I did get a, a note from Vernon saying, well, he says he's getting old. I don't I don't believe that. But he said the Elaine Carone song is actually called Slam the Count Clown, not Stomp the Clown. Okay. And I believe just now I said beneath the clouds, when of course it is above the clouds. Well, okay, yeah. So I just wanted to get those out there before these th- flags start getting thrown hither and yon. And hmm. uh, okay, more hither and less yon. In other words, okay, <laughs> okay, yes, I agree with that. Yeah. Oh, hither on you, yon would have been me. All right. Well, uh, do bass players go first, or the drums usually kick it off? Uh, drum fill. All right. You want to start with a drum fill or a bass slide? Baseline. Baseline. Pew. Go ahead. <laughs> um, okay. Yes. So we need to lead with the bass because I have yet another surprise for you. Oh, <laughs> I did ask uh, Vernon in the back channel to give us his three favorite personal performances of his own. Okay. Um, and one had to be in the yacht era. So I have those and I was going to use those for my lightning round. I was going to borrow from a fellow bass player. Okay. The one he chose from the Yacht Rock era is Heartlight by Kenny Loggins. Yeah. But we have referenced that song many a time. Doesn't matter. So, um, well, I'm going to use this, though, as license to uh, go di- dip into the viewer mailbag for some Kenny Loggins-related content hot off the presses. Mail's in. Wow, I'm confused. Yeah, okay. So, it is Heartlight was his song, but we've played that. It's already in our playlist. We've talked about it. Two or three times now. So, I got viewer mail from listener Peter who says uh, this. If you love the Kenny Loggins Leap of Faith album, you should check out this rare track written by Mark Jordan and Mm -hmm. Richard Page Mm -hmm. from the 1994 soundtrack version of The Jungle Book. It's called Two Different Worlds, and it's gorgeous. And I give up my world for you. Somehow we never ever knew how much we were connected to the everlasting night. So there you go, written by Mark Jordan and Richard Page. That is absolutely completely 100% new to me in this very moment. Oh, it's so hard to find, too. So I don't even think it exists on Spotify. I will put the link to the youtube version at least in the show notes yeah please do yep it's a nice little and he's right on that that is could have been torn right off leap of faith yeah okay all right what have you found at sea even though that's not yachty but i did find it at sea yeah what do you got little drummer boy this is a quick one uh and it involves you we um as of the recording of this it's already been announced the tour for uh with the eagles in uh hmm. steely dan and there was a post where people were sort of lamenting the price of the tickets, which is common and I guess expected with those two artists. And my reply, and even Vernon referenced it, was just, I guess you've probably heard this ad nauseum, that there is so little money to be made in streaming music. I think even popular artists are not making money 
with the streams. And I even saw a rehash of a Lukather interview that talked about people that have had platinum selling records and still they're living broke in a one bedroom apartment. And really, uh, yeah. But I thought that what was very astute was actually your comment. Added on top of that. Do you recall what I'm talking about? Uh, I sure do. And I All think right. it's one of the main drivers. And I, and I never really thought of it from that perspective. But I want you to quickly elaborate on what you said. Well, when the ticket brokers and the scalpers got involved, they proved that the market would bear a much higher ticket price for the corporate seats or whoever. Somebody was willing to pay 1200 bucks to be in the front row to see the Stones or yeah. something. So the artists are like, I'm not making any money by making music and i can only make money touring music and the market will bear 1200 why should a scalper get 999 dollars out of that when i could get they've already yeah they've proven that it's out there yeah. right. so that's what people are willing to pay in some ways you know some people will call it greed yeah in some ways it's like power to the artist they need to make a buck that's what yeah it's not want. just the post napster world that that is definitely probably if not more than 50 percent. it's at least 50 percent of the reason prices yep. are that high yeah very good all right. All uh, right, so that brings me to Buried Treasure. Yes, it does. Since we're talking bass players, uh, I wanted to come up with one that was sort of, well, well off the beaten path, but uh, I just found find the bass intro of this song so interesting. And since it was on Vernon's list, Paul McCartney at number two, I had to find one of Paul's that just kind of really blows me away. And this is from the Wings era. And this was a non-album single but check out the bass part at the beginning of this tune and this is from it was a would have been recorded during the um what, what's it called uh, I, I can't think of the name of the album now um, back to the egg that's it the back to the egg album and this is goodnight tonight It's not a music, man. It's kind of got that tone you like, uh, <laughs> yeah. that nasal upper register. I thought it was really interesting what uh, Vernon said about how Paul would lay a lot of his tracks at the end after the session was done. And I didn't bring this up, but I wanted to. It's like after you've heard the keyboardist do his thing, the vocalist, the guitar, I bet all these different lines come to you in your yeah. head and it inspires you and then you can apply it to the bass. I'm sure really everybody cool. would like to be able to do that, but <laughs> yeah. he was the boss, so he gets to be last. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Yeah. Well, since I'm the boss here, I am going to uh, take my buried treasure. And that is the work that uh, Vernon did with Dave Mason. Mm -hmm. which is almost impossible to find anywhere. Not YouTube, not Spotify. Unless you find it in the record store, I don't think you're going to find it. I scoured the internet for the album Some Assembly Required, which was the Vernon Porter featured Dave Mason record. Can't find it. Mm. Somehow I managed to, I mean, I looked for a good 45 minutes. I stumbled upon a video. It's one track off of that record. It's called Draw the Line. And I will put the link in the show notes. Oh, and geez. here's a little for your listening pleasure. Dave Mason, draw the line. I believe 1987. amazing how much music is out there from established artists that just is 
difficult to find. I know. With I mean, all of the availability now, it's so hard to find. Get that thing on Spotify. Dang. Let's get some spins going. Yeah. All right. Uh, that was my uh, pair of treasure. Yeah, that right? was. What's your off the map? So off the map. Because we are doing this snake draft style. We are. I'm going to go back to Vernon's list of three songs. Uh, notice I'm only covering two, so hint, hint, something is coming. Um, the third song on Werner's list of his own personal favorite performances is off the Above the Clouds album, which is awesome. No wonder you had to get the title right. (laughs) (laughs) That album is fantastic. It is on Spotify. So go listen to that thing. There's some vocals by Michael McDonald on there. It's just spectacular. He writes most, Vernon writes most of the music Mm. on there. But um, one of my personal favorites off of it was the song that he referenced, and it's called New Beginning. There you go. Yeah, I love his technique of accenting with the high register note and then going down to the low. That's cool. That's very yes. good. Fantastic record. 1994, I believe. Is that what it was? Mm. Um, anyways, listen to that whole album and you'll understand why I have so much respect for Mr. Vernon Porter. All right, off the map for me, real quick, I wanted to go to your list, your list of bass players, and okay. I can't believe that you made it through a lightning round without going back to using your off the map for an opportunity for some John Taylor. Ooh. So I, you know how much I love me some John Taylor as well, and I think the absolute highlight of his career, great career, but the highlight is the solo section of Rio and just listen to the bass underneath what everything else that's going on. That man, that's one of the great moments of 80s music history. I once learned that bass i could almost play it man like i learned it oh i'm so proud of myself love it i can love never do it. it now okay well um because mr vernon porter was such a gracious guest and he is a wonderful human being let's play one more the third song off of his list of his favorite personal performances i mentioned the fact that he's played with bet midler here's a song that approaches yachtiness it's called let me drive There you go. Well, you know what they say. Hmm. Ahoy, Paloy. (laughs) 